Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've got dark material, and in the real world, that dark material, the wars, exploitation, inequality, et cetera, et cetera. We know all familiar with the list of all that's wrong. That is difficult to look at in the real world. But I think what I want but what I believe a writer can do or an artist can do is you take that dark material and you transmute it into art. So because I I, I I have this conversation with my students when we're reading Greek tragedy or something like the Iliad, for example, which is about war. And but what Homer did or what the oral tradition that produced that poem did is it transformed war, the destruction of a city, because the poem is really about the destruction of a city and all the suffering that it entails. And it made art out of it. Melting Pot, a global podcast series hosted by Pyle, connects guests who have inspiring stories and reaches out to a multicultural audience over 52 countries. Guests are diverse, such as celebrities, entrepreneurs, travelers, and many more who've had a turning point in their lives and moved over to a holistic lifestyle. Follow us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, social media. Hi, everyone. Today, I am in conversation for Melting Pot with Charles Fisher. Charles is talking to me from Seattle. Um, he teaches humanities at Everett Community College in Washington. His focus is on classic literature. He has a background in ancient Greek, a PhD in English, combined with a Master of Theological Studies degree from the Harvard Divinity School. And I think that is something that puts Charles in a very unique position to be drawn on the events of ancient history as the basis of the fiction book that he has recently uh, published. The book is called The Eunuch. And um, I do have a soft copy of it and I'm, I'm actually going through it. And it's great for me because I'm traveling, so I'll be able to read it on my travels. Thank you so much, uh, Charles, for joining me for your this evening of the previous day and for me the morning. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. So, Charles, when did the idea of writing fiction actually occur to you? And how long did the research process take? I'm really curious about that. And the actual writing of the book. Sure, it was a long process. I realized that I wanted to write as at a relatively early age. I was for a while I was a student at Oxford University studying theology. 
And I picked up a novel by Evelyn Waugh, great British comic writer called Decline and Fall. It's his first novel. It's this wild comedy set in Oxford University. And I read that and I said, I want to do that. This is, I want to write a comic novel. But it was a long time before I uh, got the confidence to begin writing. And it started maybe a decade later. I found myself back in school at Harvard studying theology. And I worked during the summer at the Derrick Box Center for Teaching and Learning, which is a a pedagogical center at Harvard named after their uh, wonderful former president, Derrick Bach. And I had all this time on my hand in between the spring and the uh, fall uh, semesters. And so I just started writing on one of these big Mac computers. This must have been in the 90s at some time. And everything I wrote was really pretty horrible and and autobiographical, what it was like to be a 30-something graduate student. It was just pretty bad. But you have to start somewhere. And I think what inspired me was I had a flatmate who was doing a PhD in Assyriology, which is the study of all the ancient Mesopotamian languages, Babylonian, um, Assyrian, Hebrew. And she was learning how to decipher these cuneiform tablets. And it was a quite a rigorous program. And I was impressed with her dedication. And we would spend the evenings over a glass of wine or a beer. And she would tell me about uh, all these tablets uh, of Babylonian history and what she was reading. Uh, I ended up reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I became fascinated with that whole area. And anyway, I continued to write continued to with my studies. I ended up doing a lot of, I ended up talking my way into an MFA fiction workshop and at the University of Washington years later when I was working on my PhD. And that's when I began to really hone the craft of writing and, and think about, I wanted to write an ambitious novel and I began to think about, I needed a topic. And this is when the whole Babylonian thing came back to mind. And I was looking for, I didn't really want to write directly about my life. I wanted to find an an analog or an analogy and to express some of the things that I was feeling. And I wanted it to be funny. And so I hit upon this idea of writing from the point of view of a eunuch in a king's harem. And I was looking around what period of history, what kind of king. And then I hit upon Nebuchadnezzar, who was the longest reigning king in ancient Babylon. And he's famous for a number of things, but uh, most of all for invading Judah and initiating the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. And he sacked Solomon's temple. This is all in 589. And so so that was just the idea for the book. And I have to mention the Iraq war of 2003 was involved with it. I saw the United States involve themselves in the oldest civilization in history. And so that was going on as well. I started the book in 2003, around the time of the invasion. It took 10 years to write because of all the research and, and all the revision. Quite a project. Uh, that's a long answer. I, I apologize. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. That's it, interesting. So what intriguing information or that you came across while you were doing research because this is a 
dark comedy with the yes. historical settings, the yeah. historical aspect of it. The thing about these Mesopotamian kingdoms, it was all power politics, real politique. And these were powerful city-states with large armies, complicated bureaucracies, powerful priesthoods, and they would often wage brutal war without quarter against their neighboring states. They were essentially empires. And that sounded very familiar to me as an American of my generation who I was a young man during the Vietnam War. Well, actually, I, I was a very young man during the Vietnam War, too young to fight in it. But I, uh, that was the era that I grew up in, the United States involvement, Southeastern Asia. And then when I came of age, I saw everything that we were doing in the Middle East. I had two brothers that fought in the, the first Gulf War in 1991. And then later, of course, the invasion of Iraq and all of that. And I saw a lot of similarities to the power politics that the United States engaged in the world. And uh, these ancient kingdoms in Mesopotamia, uh, and of course, uh, Babylon uh, is uh, arose in what's called the cradle of civilization between the Mesopotamian rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. It was really one of the first great civilizations, along with the civilization in the Indus River Valley um, and Egypt, of course, invent they invented writing. Uh, here's where the domestication of plants and animals occurred. It was really the origins of so much uh, of what we, of so much of the way we live today. And so I saw all sorts of parallels uh, between my own country, United States in the 20th century, and now the 21st century, and what was going on there. And so I, I really, I wanted to work that material. My readers could see the present in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So why is the focal character in your book a eunuch? Yeah, that has something to do with he's a eunuch slave scribe. So he's a, a part of the administrative bureaucracy, right? A relatively powerful position within ancient Babylon. He's literate. He knows how to write, keeps the king's record. And I wanted to explore this individual's complicity in the power politics of the empire. He's not the guy that would march with the army and invade a city and sack a city and put to sword tens of thousands of individuals, but he's the guy that records the deaths on his cuneiform tablets. Mm. So he plays this kind of bureaucratic administrative role in the war machine. So that was part of my interest, the way that, frankly, I was appalled the way that the, U the U.S. press got on board with the Iraq war. I felt they were complicit in it. I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the New York Times, the Washington Post. I was very much against that war. And the United States scribal establishment, if I can call it that, fully supported what the what President Bush and the Pentagon were up to. And so my character, even though he himself is a slave, was a victim of the power politics of Nebuchadnezzar. He was originally from Assyria. 
which Babylon uh, sacked, invaded and took over around 609 BCE. So he himself is a, a victim of the war. So there was that political angle. But the reason I made him a eunuch was, I, I suppose, to reflect my own sense of powerlessness, impotence. And that impotence was political, economic. I was a graduate student at the time of the war, lived in a one-room apartment with a hot plate in the bathroom down the hall. And I was using that metaphor, essentially. And I thought there'd be some comic value in it as well. I've been talking about some of the historical and political aspects of the novel, but some of my first readers described the book as an erotic tragedy. And so I, I was interested in this individual who had been imprisoned as a young boy and then castrated by the king's army and then enslaved in his service, what his adulthood would be like, what his romantic life would be be like and he serves in the king's harem well because all these kings had these harems and the harems were essentially slave women mm -hmm. babylon was engaged in what we would call sex trafficking they would invade and they'd kill the men and enslave the women and then if they were young women they'd and attractive they'd put them in the king's harem and so the so i, I wanted to place my narrator in that harem to not only observe their own victimization but to also ex explore his own desire, because even though he's been physically mutilated by the regime, as it were, he is a, a person with passion and desire. Uh, I suppose the theme I was exploring was this idea of thwarted desire, unrequited love, as it were, which is a great theme in poetry and literature. So it's, it also it, it had a lot of thematic resonance, I think. And, a rich yeah. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, it does. How hard is it to because it is defined as a dark comedy with a historical setting? Why is it being described as a dark comedy? Yeah. I, um. In part, it was a matter of my own literary taste. I grew up in an era. In the United States were people who studied literature from my own kind of middle-class background. We were all Anglophiles and we read British novels and English novels, British novels, English novels, Scottish novels, the Irish novel. They have a great history. There's a great tradition of the comic novel. Think of Henry Fielding, Tom Jones, or Jane Austen. And, and then and a number of great 20th century comic writers. Uh, I, I loved Martin Amos when I was a young man, the son of Kingsley Amos. And so a lot of it was just about emulation. Uh, I want to, I, I enjoy these comic novels. And the, and the reason I, I went in a, more of a dark direction was when you look at life, sometimes there can be, there can be so much suffering and violence that you can, you're either going to, laugh at its dark absurdity or hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Or cry and despair. And I think the the eunuch, my novel, is a little bit of both. That the only real attitude toward this level of human absurdity and folly, and I'm talking about the the violence of war and uh, wars that are often led by utter mediocrities and, and moral midgets, uh, that the only really approach to that, or one approach to it, there's more than one approach, is dark comedy, satire, and parody. Uh, it's a kind of weapon, as it were. Mm. Um, and I it's just my natural mood or attitude towards life to find humor in the dark corners of our existence. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So the way the analogy between reality of today versus how it was all those years ago is, yeah. and the similarity in a different context, but still the similarities is what you were looking at bringing about. A couple of scenes that you particularly feel stand out for you and also some you did mention a reader response to your book, but a couple of other interesting responses that probably took you by surprise or you felt like, oh, I did not, I could have included something else or I did not think of it from that perspective. That yeah. was interesting to share. Certainly, yeah. Some of the reader responses that have surprised me was some of my first readers were a little shocked by the book's darkness. I hope this doesn't sound too pretentious. Uh, it's metaphysical pessimism. Yeah, it's a portrait of a violent world, a predatory world. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, 7th century BC, Babylon, there, there was no Jesus or Buddha or Socrates or Moses, right, offering an alternative to the, the Darwinian universe of predator and prey. And I wanted to portray that brutality as realistically as I could. And I think that shocked some of the readers. Um I, I would not have written that kind of, I'm 62 years old and I would not, that book is a product of my forties when I was more pessimistic and I wasn't afraid to flirt with nihilism. As I've grown older, I have, I've mellowed quite a bit 
And that kind of nihilism, even if it's expressed comically, I can still enjoy, but it doesn't thrill me as much as it once did. I think that there's so much of that in the world today. We can look at the horrible war that's going on between Israel and the and Gaza right now. And I think I, we, we can all, regardless of where you fall down on, on, on who's at fault and who's occupying the good side or the bad side, there's just so much violence and horror and suffering that, you know, it's scary. It, 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 it's a cause for despair. And when I was younger, I, I was more calloused. I don't want to say I was sociopathic, but I saw that as part of the larger folly of humankind. And, and I, I could exploit that for my own comic pers- purposes. I, I would never write a book like that now, I don't think. And some of my early readers reacted to that and understandably, and, uh, and that surprised me a little bit, but in retrospect, it doesn't. It, 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 the book has its dark moments. Okay, so you you could have written because, as you've mentioned, the political environment or whatever is going on in the world today or back then as well, it would have been interesting for you to write an alternative reality just to take away from all the negativity which is which was and continues to be a part of the world that we're living in today so that did not occur to you part of it is what you do is you take uh you've got dark material and in the real world that dark material the wars exploitation inequality etc cetera, etc cetera. we know all familiar with the list of all that's wrong that is difficult to look at in the real world but i think what i want but what i believe a writer can do or an artist can do is you take that dark material and you transmute it into art so because I, I i i have this conversation with my students when we're reading greek tragedy or something like the iliad for example which is about war and but what homer did or what the oral tradition that produced that poem did is it transformed war the destruction of a city because the poem is really about the destruction of a city and all the suffering that it entails and it made art out of it and one of the questions i asked my students why do we want to read it um and the art is in it kind of it shines the light of truth on this aspect of human behavior and it does so in a, in a poetic way. In some sense, Homer aestheticizes or makes beautiful violence. And so the experience of, I think, a sensitive reader experience, uh, will feel both delight at the art, but also horror at the subject matter. And it's that tension between the, the delight and pleasure in the beauty of the art in the kind of, I, I think the only word is horror. Aristotle used the term pity and terror. He felt that tragedy would act as a kind of release or catharsis. I believe that's his word. Purge us of 
our negative emotions. Uh, and so uh, that, that, I mean, that, I, I believe that's true for me as a writer. I, I certainly would never compare myself into the, to a Homer or a Sophocles. At, at best, I aspire to be a, a minor writer, um, but I, I wanted to create something beautiful. I spent a lot of time on the voice and the style of the work. And so while the re so while I'm exploring these dark topics, a lot of readers have taken pleasure in the humor, the language. I wanted to write a number of beautiful sentences, good sentences. And one of my readers said that there were so many good sentences in the book. And so there, there is always going to be that tension between the art of the text, or in this case, the work, and then the darkness of the subject matter. But that's what I was drawn to. That's where the energy was, so to speak. Uh, I can, I'll, I'll quote the novelist Philip, the American novelist Philip Roth, who died not that long ago. People would always ask him, why did he write about what he wrote about? And you know, he would often wrote about sexuality and sex and relationships between men and women. And he had his fans, but he also had his detractors. And he says, I really didn't have any choice about what I wrote. I had to write, I had to go where the energy was. And when I read that struck me as true, you go where the energy is for you as a writer. And if I were to write about that, an, an alternative reality or to have something a little bit lighter, material that's less tragic, there just wasn't that kind of energy there for me as a writer. It's not really something I can explain. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. How do you feel today? Are you in the process of writing another uh, novel? I am, yes. I'm oh, almost I'm yes, I'm almost done with my second work, second novel. And my publisher's interested and he hopes to um put it out in uh January of 2025. It's a shorter book and it's about male disaffection, adolescent male disaffection in the United States. I don't know what young males are going through in Singapore. But young men in America are disengaging and withdrawing from the world at an alarming rate and are being socialized in some, by some of the more negative or in, uh, corners of the internet. And the novel is about explorers. There's a message board on the internet called 4chan. And it's a place where young men, mostly young men, but some young women go and they are free to write and express themselves on any topic, art, politics, sexuality, relationships, their families, problems with school and work. And these message boards are, are all very disturbing when you look at it. There's a tremendous amount of alienation and disaffection. For a while, the people on these boards would celebrate mass murder. They valorized mass shooters. We during the 21st century, we had an epidemic of mass school shootings in the United States. One of the, the one of the first and most famous of the mass shootings occurred in 1998 in Columbine, Colorado, and but there have been a spate of these ever since. And my novel is not about a mass shooter, but it's about a would-be mass shooter. He gets socialized into all the politics and the disaffection and uh, the ideas of that are surrounding 
mean, the veneration of these disturbed sociopaths that commit these acts. And it's an ex it's, again, it's another dark exploration of the human psyche. I, I guess another way to put it, I wanted to write my version of Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. I don't know if you've you remember that novel or, or saw the film by Stanley Kubrick. But Burgess, I used to teach that novel, Clockwork Orange, and Burgess was interested in the or, or in the origins of youth violence. Where did it come from? And that's what his novel is about. And I wanted to do a kind of contemporary version of it. And part of the attractions of Burgess's novel for me were, was his language, was his style. He invented a, a youth slang, an idiolect, made up of English and Russian slang words, and he, and he called it NADSET. And so when you read A Clockwork Orange, you get initiated into this language. And at first, it's strange. You don't understand it. But after you read a chapter or two, you're speaking this language of this youth gang that he's depicting in his novel. And my novel is a version of that. But instead of a youth gang, it's all these isolated, alienated individuals on the Internet. And they have their own language. It's an Internet language of, uh, of memes, made up lingo. And it's, it's very creative. And, and darkly humorous in its own way. And what attracted to me that in, in my novel, it's titled Spurglord, there's a marriage between character and language in the same way that there's a marriage between character and language in Anthony Burgess. And that always interests me where, where a culture, a language, and a personality coalesce. Yeah. It's, hard to achieve, it's hard to achieve on your own as a writer. Um, but I found it ready-made on these image boards, these posting boards. I don't know if you've heard of Reddit, but it's yeah, like a darker, yeah, yeah. It's a darker, more messed up version of Reddit where mm -hmm. people kind of spill all their fantasies and their thoughts and ideas about life. And um, I drew heavily on that material in creating this second book. Um, again, I'm not proud of the topic, but for some reason I'm drawn to that kind of material it, I, I it, it energizes me as as a writer it gets my creative juices flowing that's interesting thank you so much Charles I really enjoyed listening to you you have obviously a lot and a lot to share thank you I appreciate you giving me the time for this conversation and I am, like I said, definitely going to, within the next couple of weeks, be reading your entire book. And I look forward to the next book that you're going to be publishing in 2025. Thank you so much, Charles. I want to thank you for a lovely conversation and a most intelligent interview. It's been a total delight. Thanks very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. For more weekly conversations, do listen to Melting Pot on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Follow us on YouTube and on Instagram at Podcast Melting Pot. So until the next episode, this is Pyle signing off. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 